This is not the media. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live stream and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. We started this week by talking with sociologist Musa Al-Garbi about his writing at The Baffler that looked closely at the assumptions we have about the dangers faced by the police, their effectiveness in actually fighting and solving crime, and the degree to which they pose a threat to the citizens they're supposed to protect. Turns out their workday isn't as dangerous as news, TV shows, and movies make it out to be. Cops are really not good at solving crime, and they shoot a lot of unarmed citizens who have not committed any crime at all. Keep in mind the homicide rate among police officers is 9.74 per 100,000 officers, and the homicide rate for the average adult male of any race in the United States is 9.5 per 100,000. So it's as dangerous to be a cop in the United States as it is to be a dude walking around. Then yesterday, Tuesday, we talked to Aya Gruber about her book, The Feminist War on Crime, and the advent of carceral feminism, which promoted the idea that feminism could somehow be enforced by the police, that punishment at the hands of the law would somehow bring about equality, when in reality, all it did was bring about even more of a police state without addressing the root causes of violent crimes against women. So after talking about policing, deadly violence, the expanded carceral state under a punitive brand of feminism's impact on the lives of especially people of color who are poor, today we are moving on to the policing of immigrant lives when we speak with historian Adam Goodman, author of The Deportation Machine, America's Long History of Expelling Immigrants. Turns out that the U.S., despite what the commercials say, is not all that welcoming to foreigners. Sure, we say we are a country of immigrants, but from the very start, hell, before the start of the USA, people who had come to the Americas to find a new life found that previous settlers weren't crazy about the newbies and would force them off their new land. Deportation today takes many forms, invisible to outsiders in the media, and most are deported not through the formal process, but by force, coercion, and fear, simply scaring immigrants into leaving, which creates immigrant communities around the country, across the United States, that constantly live in fear 24-7. We'll learn about the real problems with immigration in a few when we talk to Adam, who is an assistant professor of history in Latin American and Latino studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Adam is one of the coordinators of the Borderlands and Latinos Studies Seminar at the Newberry Library and the Global Migration Working Group at UIC, where he serves as a faculty advisor to the Fearless Undocumented Alliance. Follow Adam on Twitter at Adam S.I. Goodman, and you can find out more about Adam at his website. Again, adamsigoodman.com. This week's question from Mel is, what was Joe Biden up to this whole time? What has Joe Biden been up to this whole time? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask. You can check out the This Is Hell face mask right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can help out completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks for all of your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. All of that information is at our website, thisishell.com. But we must have your answers by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Alex, do you have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah. What has Joe Biden been up to lately? What has Joe Biden been up to lately? Jack B says brain transplant. Sure. Steve C says Joe hasn't been up at all. <laughs> Thomas K says malarkey. Sebastian M says who? Adam or Alan G says sliding into Obama's DMs. Michelle Obama's <laughs> DMs. 
Rosario R says, drinking the blood of the young souls crushed by debt and lack of healthcare to regain some consciousness and look normal before trying to appear in public again. Sure. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question mail following our guest. Again, email us your answer to chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com or post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio or DM them to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Again, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of the show tomorrow, Thursday, following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. So get your answers in now. During tomorrow's Moment of Truth, Jeff wonders if we can pretend our way to justice. I wonder that too. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell. And speaking of hangovers, I need your help. Everyone listening right now, I need all of you to give me your suggestions, your wisdom, because I've got to admit it, I have a drinking problem. No, not that kind of a problem. So far, I'm doing pretty well as a high-functioning alcoholic, as Jeff Dorchin once described me on this very show. I mean, sure, someday that ship will definitely crash and burn, unless they come up with weed that's a lot stronger and costs a lot less, so I won't need a drink to forget about this miserable freaking world. But for now, I've got my barely controlled alcohol consumption under a modicum of slight control. No, my drinking problem isn't about alcoholism. My drinking problem is far more complicated and personal than that. Last week, the city of Chicago, where we are doing this show right now, in a studio above a bar called Carrie's Lounge, the city announced we were all suddenly safe enough from the global pandemic of coronavirus that we could finally, after months of staying away from each other, we could finally return to bars, which were allowed to reopen with outdoor seating exclusively, and social distancing being enforced. So uh, this past Friday, with only outdoor seating being opened in Chicago's bars, I got emails, messages via social media, even phone calls from people wanting to know if this is how office hours were happening, and that apparently some assumed it would and were already at Carrie's awaiting the return of our weekly drink and think with listeners. To be honest, holding office hours was the farthest thing from my mind. Last Friday, my girlie took Juneteenth off, her first day off from work since Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, and we were really, really busy working very hard at doing absolutely nothing, and it was incredible. It was wonderful. By the time I found out office hours attendees were at the bar, I had lulled myself into a health, or half, health, half-conscious delirium that was more like a half-dream state of perfect relaxation. So no, there was no way in hell I was about to scrape myself off the back balcony deck overlooking the park, put on my outdoor COVID clothes, strap on my stinking mask and become frustrated with latex gloves, then walk to the bar and worry that everyone around me has the virus, making certain their masks are properly affixed because apparently... If the bottom strap isn't secure, your COVID-carrying breath can exhaust out the back of your mask and vent on your six without you knowing or the people who you just aerosolized being aware that they've been burned. This Friday, in only two days, Restore Illinois Phase 4 begins with the reopening of indoor seating and bars. Although occupancy is still limited, masks are strongly suggested, and social distancing should be strictly enforced. And again, I had someone asking me if we would be restarting office hours in two days this Friday. Now, we do everything we can here on This Is Hell to not have any conflict of interest whatsoever, and it's a very difficult thing to do. 
It means that I do not network with activists and others in the media because if I did become friendly with organizers or journalists, my ability to critique either would be compromised. I don't go to protests, unfortunately. I haven't gone to any protests since this show started because I think that might lead to a conflict of interest and being part of the protest crowd would make it so I wouldn't be able to be critical of the protest. Which kind of sucks because it makes me a loner who everybody kind of hates. I've been told I must join the movement, whatever the movement is at the time. But within my understanding of social movements, our role here on This Is Hell is to inform with perspectives that are being kept out of the public debate in an effort that could motivate listeners to begin a movement or become part of an already existing action. And the best way we think we can do that is by making certain we have as few conflicts of interest as necessary. That's why we do not have any advertising. That's why we don't take any grant money. It's why we are completely listener-supported, so that our only interest is getting what we think is the best and most important information to you every day, especially information that is not being shared anywhere else. That goal of having no conflicts of interest is why we're broke, why I have six-digit debt. But we do have one singular conflict of interest. This studio and office space above Carrie's Lounge has been kindly provided to us at a below market rental rate that doesn't do much more than pay for the utilities of this space. I want to stress we do not have any kind of agreement with Carrie's Lounge, nor do I have any with its owner, Pete Valavanis. That said, Pete is my brother, and that's not a word I use loosely, and I would do anything for him if he asked. Well, most anything, because right now I'm betting he's listening and he's trying to figure out what ridiculous thing he can get me to do. There is no quid pro quo here. Long before we ever had a space above the bar, we did weekly meet and greets immediately following our Saturday morning shows on WNUR, and that went on for like 10 years before we moved up here. We are not required in any way to promote events at carries or anything about the bar, and often we don't. We are simply grateful to have a, an office and studio space because without them, and with WNUR studios closed to the public and all station staff, we wouldn't have been able to do the show during the pandemic. So thanks to Carrie's and Pete for giving us access to the space and to allow us to party with listeners on a regular basis. All that said, there is a clear conflict of interest here when it comes to the bar downstairs. I want my brother to do well. I want Pete to not have any financial difficulties. I want Carrie's employees who depend upon bar customers to also no longer be suffering due to the economic challenges caused by the virus. I want the people who Pete helps out gratis, who need his help as a social provider every day. I want those people to have more access to Pete so he can help them out. I want the many people who psychologically and spiritually depend upon Carrie's for their socializing, as it is one of the very few public houses in the neighborhood. I want that to return. I want to go downstairs and share a beer, many beers, with you because as Alex, who is not, not a bar person, can attest, this is how office hours is a blast. You get to talk to people who you have never met before, have fascinating conversations with listeners, not only here in, from here in Chicago, but from all around the country and world who drop by to join us and make new friends, which as you get older becomes an increasingly more difficult thing to do. So yes, I want to have office hours this Friday when the state and city enter into phase four, but the problem is 
I'm still in phase one, and so is my girly. I still do not leave the house without a mask or latex gloves. I still have outdoor clothes and change into indoor clothes before re-entering my home. We still leave groceries and mail out for three days, and when we bring groceries in, we still disinfect them. We have no idea what the future can bring. Who knows? Maybe Trump's miracle of the virus simply going away will come true. It won't, but who knows? Maybe there will suddenly be a miracle vaccine. There won't, probably, until about Labor Day of next year, 2021, but who knows? Maybe there will be another huge surge of this still first wave, or maybe it will subside, only to be followed by the predicted second wave this fall, when cold weather forces more people inside into smaller places where COVID can easily be transmitted. We really have no idea of what happens next when it comes to the virus. However, the next item on my schedule is, and you know this if you heard my monologue on Patreon last week, my family is planning on going on our annual summer vacation together again, as it has been doing since before I was born. If and when we do get together, there will be family members there from all over Michigan who have just visited with family in Indiana and others who will have recently returned from Massachusetts and all of us here from Chicago, creating what is a potential petri dish of familial virus transmission. Sure, we'll be social distancing each in our own cabin that will be off limits to all other family members only socializing outdoors, unable to actually physically touch each other, no hugging, no kissing, more none of the stuff that really expresses the intense nature of your love for each other within a family. Until then, we have all promised to do as much as possible to have as little contact with others in order to keep our families safe and to keep their families safe when they return home. When we do return from that vacation in mid-August, my girlie and I will then again be self-quarantining to make certain that Anything we may have picked up in our travels has as little chance of, as possible of spreading. Which means the soonest that we may be hosting This Is Hell office hours will be around mid-September of this year. And there is certainly no guarantee of that or any chance of having office hours at all this year. And who knows? Maybe deep into next year, too, because I'm still telling you. Office hours, it's probably not likely until after Labor Day of next year, 2021. So yes, I do have a drinking problem. I want to go downstairs and get a cold draft beer because beer on tap always tastes better and sit in the heat of the sun with the perfect early summer cool breeze coming off Lake Michigan and enjoy the company of neighbors and friends. But I cannot unless I want to sacrifice the only vacation I get every year and possibly the only time I can see family until we are back at the lake next year, hopefully, a la willing. Damn it, I missed the bar. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to go on missing it for a few more months. Which really sucks and does nothing but remind me. This is hell. Coming up on This Is Hell, the U.S. deportation machine has been running since before there was a U.S. And more of your answers to this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing as Alex Jerry live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is hell. There's a long history of forcible removal of people from one area to another in the United States, starting with the indigenous and still happening to this very day with deportations of immigrants, most of which are rarely reported on and barely understood by the non-immigrant public. Here to help us understand exactly how deportations work in the United States today, historian Adam Goodman is author of The Deportation Machine, America's Long History of Expelling Immigrants. Welcome to This is Hell, Adam. 
Thanks, Chuck. Pleasure to be here. Adam is an assistant professor of history and Latin American and Latino studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago, my alma mater. You can follow Adam on Twitter at Adam S.I. Goodman, and you can find out more about Adam at his website. Again, AdamSIGoodman.com. You begin by making or by asking, what kind of nation is the United States? Although celebrated in popular mythology as a nation of immigrants that has welcomed foreigners throughout its history, the United States has also deported nearly 57 million people since 1882, more than any other country in the world. With that seeming contradiction of what the United States is and what its popular popular mythology claims it is, why is either that mythology or the policy of deportation sustainable? How, How do these two contradicting ideas of America persist? Why don't we simply come up with an immigration policy that reflects the myth or do away with the myth that we accept foreigners? In a way, I think the two go hand in hand. I mean, the United States is a nation of immigrants. Uh, it's also a nation that has consistently and selectively discriminated against certain immigrant groups for a number of reasons and deported those groups. And the very fact that there are immigrants in this country to begin with, and much greater than numbers than in other countries, means that historically the United States has had to decide who is allowed to enter, who is allowed to stay, Um, And in turn, you know, who they will deport. So I think the identity of the United States as a nation of immigrants goes hand in hand with the country's identity as a deportation nation. So why don't those two things contradict each other? I I just don't understand how how it's possible to hold those two in place at the same time. I guess my bigger issue then is not how it's done, but why it's done. Why is that myth so important to the mythologizing of the United States? Well, I mean, we could take just one example. If, for example, the United States had much harsher policies and didn't let anyone enter to begin with, there would be no one to deport, if you follow my yes, my thinking yes, here. Yeah. You know, in, in that sense, you know, the nation of immigrants mythology uh, is complementary or tied to the deport, deportation nation narrative, which I've documented in great depth in, in the book. And I think that you know, the deportation machine historically has functioned for a number of different reasons, you know, certainly in part to promote the bureaucratic interests of the Immigration and Naturalization Service, now the Department of Homeland Security. And, you know, they're always happy to you know, celebrate their accomplishments and numbers of people apprehended and deported in hopes of getting more congressional funding. Uh, the deportation machine has also been used for capitalist ends to maintain an exploitable immigrant labor force. You know, historically, that you know has always been the case. Who the immigrant labor force is has changed over time, but the country's always depended on immigrant labor, but not necessarily welcomed those immigrants as full members of society, and therefore held the threat of deportation over them in order to extract labor and exploit those different groups. And then the third thing I would say in terms of how the deportation machine has worked and why it has is that you know, many U.S. officials and government officials from other countries have held explicitly racist beliefs about migrants. Uh, and this is tied to the point of not seeing them as full members of, of uh, this country and of our society. And I think that migrants certainly and migrant communities have challenged that uh, at every point and every turn. But in terms of how our policies have been structured, oftentimes we are very happy to welcome migrants for their labor and not as interested in terms of national policymakers in welcoming them as 
um, U.S. citizens and in some cases even permanent residents. And we'll get to the uh, in depth to the exploitable labor force aspect of this. But you point out that a lot of the deportations that happen happen from far from public view. But far from public view should not mean far from the media's view. Why does this story, why do the stories of the other kinds of deportation beyond just kind of the formal deportations and when it comes to voluntary and self-deportation, why are those stories seemingly not getting the attention it should receive in the news media? Because far too many people were unaware that the deportation machine in general that you write about had been operating prior to the Trump administration. So what explains to you why we know so little about deportations, why the media doesn't cover it more. You know, you picked up on something important there that I just want to comment on briefly before turning to the question. You know, this is an entirely bipartisan history. You know, there have been no good guys uh, in terms of the Democrats or the Republicans in this story. The history I trace is a bipartisan history over 140 years of both parties supporting and enacting you know, punitive immigration policies. So this isn't, you know, Republicans bad, Democrats good. I think that there's perhaps an opportunity for change in the future, but we'll see. You know, but one of the really surprising things and one of the important insights from the book, as you mentioned, is that you know, of the 57 million deportations throughout U.S. history, 85 percent or even a little more have happened through informal means, right? voluntary departure. Now, that's a euphemism. There's nothing voluntary uh, about these administrative deportations. Uh, what I liken them to in the book is the role that plea bargains play in the criminal justice system, and that U.S. officials have come to rely on extraordinary discretionary power among low-level agents on the line to make these decisions as to who stays and who is expelled. Right? In part, this is because of budgetary limitations and just an inability to process, to apprehend and remove all the people in the country without authorization. And the machine has come to rely on these fast track, unilateral, streamlined deportations with little to no oversight, little to no due process that are happening you know, every day, less so now perhaps than in the past, but historically, you know, tens of millions of people have been deported uh, by little or sorry, low level agents in different offices and outposts across the country without any kind of judicial process or uh, hearing that we might imagine people have you know, a chance to fight their case. That's just simply not how the deportation machine has worked. And as a result, it's become much harder and more difficult for the media and the public uh, to capture uh, and to better understand how the deportation machine operates and just how few rights non-citizens have when facing expulsion. And you write about how when you were doing research for your book, it was difficult to find records when it came to deportations. Is there a purposeful obfuscation of the history of deportation by the United States government? Million dollar question. I wish I had a definitive answer for you. Uh, I think in some ways, perhaps yes, in some ways, perhaps no. You know, it's difficult to say, but you know, when I started out on this project a decade ago, I went to Washington, D.C., to the National Archives and to the History Office and Library of U.S. Citizenship Immigration Services. And Marion Smith, you know, one of the directors of that office, basically told me that I was out of luck, uh, that there's nothing for me to look at. I mean, that was part of the 
purpose of these voluntary departures and these informal means was not only to keep costs down by minimizing detention and minimizing immigration hearings, but also minimizing the paperwork, minimizing any kind of processing of paperwork, storage of paperwork. And for historians, obviously, that presents uh, certain challenges. So I found myself faced with this question of, you know, how do you write a history of something that was designed to leave no paper trail? And that could be in part on purpose, uh, but it's, I have no proof of that, I have no evidence that it was done. I think it was more just practical reasons, and this was kind of a byproduct of that. But the more interesting question in relation to the purposeful obfuscation of, of sources comes when we get to the National Archives. And the Immigration and Naturalization Service records only run until 1957. After that, records have either not been processed, some have been destroyed, supposedly, according to what archivists have told me. The reasoning behind that is unclear. And others might be available through the Freedom of Information Act, but if anyone's ever tried to use the Freedom of Information Act, you know that uh, it can be a real challenge uh, to get information in a timely fashion or at all. I submitted some requests that I think took four years and then six years and others that, you know, had come out more or less when I was already finished working on the book. So one of the things you I, it just amazes me that it, that this kind of history of deportations would seem to be almost purposely, almost, you know, we we don't know, erased by the U.S. government. It reminds me of a conversation that we had on the show either last year or a couple of years ago. Uh, we had a historian on who was talking about how African-Americans were allowed, were given land in the Midwest and many became farmers in the Midwest, but that history in the late 18th century, early 19th century, but that history has been very much erased and it was really difficult for this historian to find out about this history of how black farmers settled the Midwest. Uh, and it just reminds me of that kind of erasure. Now, I don't want you to be forced into speculating on somebody's motivations, but do you? But if you'd like to, I'd appreciate it. Uh, do you have any idea why the United States would want to hide their record on deportations? It's a good question, and I am hesitant to speculate in the past. I and mean, what I can say is that we've seen recently, just within the past year, that there's an ongoing battle right now as to whether ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, under the Trump administration, uh, will be allowed to destroy many of their records and personal files about their abuse and mistreatment of migrants. And people have been fighting this, of course. And I think here we can see pretty clearly that there are reasons within the administration to uh, erase these records, not to make them known in the future. And that to me is more clear cut than in the past. Although the past reasoning might be similar, I just don't have you know, the evidence uh, to back it up. But more generally, as you might imagine, and as we can all imagine, if, you know, if there are fewer documents, fewer records, official records created, and there's no paper trail, you know, people are more wont to act in violent uh, manners and in illegal manners and to you know, exercise their authority, to abuse their authority at the expense of migrants and non-citizens who already are you know, at a relative power imbalance uh, within the system and within our country. So you know, it, it, it circles back to the, the problematic nature of instilling tremendous power and discretionary authority and low-level agents of the state. You know, these could be immigration agents. These could be police officers. And we've certainly seen in recent weeks how instilling 
tremendous power within low-level agents of the state could lead to horrible ends. And immigration is no different in that sense. So how far would abolishing ICE go towards undermining that power? And by the way, Adam, I'm still on my first question that I've written down. All of these have been follow-up questions because you keep making some very interesting points. So how far would uh, abolishing ICE go, go towards undermining that low-level power that is so easily abused? Difficult to say. You know, ICE you know, came about after 9-11 in the early 2000s. You know, but it's not as if immigration enforcement didn't exist prior to that. And I think that's an important misconception that some people might have. They focus on ISIS creation with the Department of Homeland Security uh, in the early 2000s, not realizing or thinking that you know, there were actually very similar uh, abuse and discrimination happening for decades and even a century earlier. So I think the question is, if we're going to abolish ICE, which I think should definitely be on the table as a policy proposal and one that you know, is taken seriously, then what would replace it or what would it look like? And I think you know, one option would be to focus more on service. The immigration bureaucracy has always had dual purposes. You know, one has been enforcement. The other is service, service to the migrant community, service uh, to people who have come to this country to work or to settle, to join their family members, or perhaps as refugees, fleeing violence, fleeing natural disaster. So if we pushed more of the resources and the identity of the agency more toward the service end and thinking about serving the migrant community, which would be in turn serving the country, I think, then things would look a lot different. So I think abolishing ICE could perhaps contribute to that, but if another enforcement agency simply came in its place, that could perhaps lead to some of the same problems. You mentioned the punitive nature of immigration policy. We were talking with a guest last week about how the United States justice system seems to be focused on vengeance more than anything else. And yesterday we were talking with Aya Gruber about carceral uh, feminism and the punitive nature of that kind of feminism. Is immigration policy then simply another example of the increasingly punitive nature rather than rehabilitative nature of our justice system in general? I think it's safe to say there's little rehabilitation happening within the immigration system. Uh, That is not one of the aims and goals. It is an enforcement agency, first and foremost. Uh, It's come you know, with extraordinary costs to migrants and non-citizens, physical, psychological, and material. And, you know, punishment has been built in, right? It's, I mean, this is, this is part of how the deportation machine works. One of the purposes of immigration enforcement is to punish migrants. Why? Well, in part, in hopes of discouraging people from returning to the United States after they've been expelled. And this is something I trace in a chapter of the book that looks at the business of deportation and the history of punitive immigration policies and the the human toll they've exacted over many decades. But there's a much longer history than we might imagine. You know, more recently, we've thought of the Trump administration's uh, separation of Central American asylum seeking families as a measure of prevention through deterrence is what it's oftentimes thought of. And In the 1990s, as the U.S.-Mexico border militarized, pushing migrants into more desolate, dangerous, and ultimately deadly areas uh, as they crossed, 
U.S. officials thought that that might deter people from crossing. You know, history shows that, in fact, those measures do not deter people from crossing, but they do uh, raise the risks and make it both more costly in a material sense as well as uh, more dangerous to the migrants. So that leads us to the question, well, if these punitive policies aren't, in fact, doing what they say they're supposed to do, that is, stop migration or lessen it, control it, then, you know, what is the ultimate purpose? And I think that built into these U.S. policies is, if not, you know, uh, at least the, the acceptance of the fact that there will be a human toll. And that is something that I think more people should be outraged about. And that is something that certainly should not be, you know, part of any immigration policies moving forward. Your book exposes the various ways immigration authorities have forced, coerced, and scared people into leaving the United States from the late 19th century to the present. To what extent have the fear, coercion, or scaring of immigrants to leave the United States, to what degree is that race-related, guided by and grounded in racism? Does the U.S. use racism to frighten and manipulate immigrants into leaving? I think the policies are undergirded by racism, without a doubt, and also you know, through capitalist and racist um, imperatives, you know, and the three mechanisms I lay out in the book, the three mechanisms that compose the deportation machine, you know, first is formal deportations, which are what we typically think of as happening in a courtroom with an immigration judge. We know the most about these, but they actually represent a very small sliver of the number of deportations throughout U.S. history. We talked a little bit earlier about the voluntary departures, Uh, which are happening on the ground, on the line by low-level officials. And those represent 85 plus percent of all expulsions throughout uh, the last 140 years. But then the third mechanism, which you raise uh, the question here, self-deportation campaigns. And these are fear campaigns, immigration raids, restrictive laws, uh, the ever-present threat of violence, and also the strategic use of the media whether that's mainstream media or social media, um, to scare people, you know, to invoke fear in people in hopes of, you know, making their lives so miserable that they decide to leave the country supposedly on their own, although I certainly argue against that. I think we need to understand this as a really concerted effort by officials and sometimes by ordinary citizens as well to try to push people out. And, you know, racism oftentimes is underlying and baked into a lot of the rhetoric used certainly by you know, what we hear out of the White House and also in the news media. You know, there's some wonderfully important studies in the 1970s uh, where social scientists analyzed coverage related to immigration and the types of words and terms used to describe migrants. And they found that you know, in 80% of the articles, the mainstream media you know, referred to migrants in disrespectful terms with a negative connotation um, that implied criminality illegality, and were also offensive, right? And so in terms of understanding how these tropes get created, understanding how we come to think of certain groups as illegal, quote unquote, or as un-American, I think the media has played a big part in that. And, you know, racism has as well. So you also point out that self-deportation, the machine's third expulsion mechanism, as you call it, has received much attention in recent years, but it is 
but it too is far from new. In fact, self-deportation's roots are older than the nation itself. In the middle of the 18th century, towns in colonial New England implemented a practice known as warning out to avoid having to provide for people in need of assistance and to exclude people who might be carrying infectious diseases like smallpox, which is a frightening history when you consider the pandemic that we're going through right now. Is self-deportation then, uh, is self-deportation a, I don't want to say a relic, a legacy of our puritanical past? Does it reach that far back in not only the its conservative political tradition, but within the culture of the United States, is it ingrained in the in uh, the United States even before there was the United States? I think the the archival record is clear on that, and the answer is yes. And you know, if we think not just about forced migration or expulsion across international borders, but as you bring up, whether or not someone's allowed to stay in a town. Right, whether someone's allowed to stay in a, a county or a state, uh, you know, whatever the area might be, you know, we see that you know, throughout history, people have always been classified as insiders and outsiders. Uh, they've been made into foreigners uh, through policies and through um, any number of means that have made it clear that they're not welcome. And in some cases like that, a warning out in you know, colonial America, they would give people a day or two to leave. And if not, the constable would come and force them to leave. You know, they would warn them and then they would force them out if they didn't leave. I think we can see that there's a through line here of people wanting to do things perhaps with a soft hand. But in reality, what I'm focusing on in the book is exposing the fact that even these seemingly informal mechanisms that we might not think of as punitive, or we might say, oh, well, people are just making these rational decisions on their own. There is very much uh, the role of some entity, whether that's the federal government, state or local officials, or even, you know, just a group of, you know, ordinary citizens or residents of a particular place, you know, and migrants or non-citizens or people who are trying to move to those communities are responding to these concerted actions and efforts uh, to push them out. And I think it's important to recognize that and not just think that you know, people are rational decision makers and they're, they're leaving on their own, supposedly. We are speaking with historian Adam Goodman. He's author of The Deportation Machine, America's Long History of Expelling Immigrants. You can follow Adam on Twitter at Adam S.I. Goodman, and you can find out more about Adam at his website at the same, adamsigoodman.com. You mentioned the legacy of creating an exploitable immigrant labor force. Is the problem with U.S. immigration problem or policy, is its problem, its mission, that being to create an exploitable immigrant labor force are all the problems that either conservatives or liberals or Republicans or Democrats or whoever may have with the immigrant policy here in the United States. The fact that its mission, its mission is to create an exploitable labor force. Historically, that's certainly true. And, you know, labor's always factored in. It's been an important consideration in any number of policies passed, you know, since the, the founding of the country. And more recently, we've seen that you know, different immigrant groups have been sought out for their labor, uh, whether, you know, it's the Irish and Southern and Eastern Europeans or the Chinese and Japanese. Uh, and as more restrictions are put in place in the late 19th, early 20th century, there are fewer and fewer options as to you know, where employers could turn. 
for their source of foreign labor. And Mexico, you know, after 1924 especially, you know, became the primary source of labor. Certainly, the different political economic pressures in Mexico, the geographic proximity, and also the active recruitment from U.S. labor, um, so, sorry, from U.S. employers who actually sent recruiters down to the U.S.-Mexico border, or even sometimes into Mexico, uh, to recruit people to come to this country. You know, I think we see that immigrant labor has always been uh, needed and sought out, and at the same time, that people have not been given, in most cases, the opportunity to regularize their status or to stay in the country. And there's been historically a revolving door of sorts that's been created. And this isn't as much the case today, since the border is much harder now. It's more militarized, more policed. Deportation represents something different today than it did in the past. You know, separation is more permanent after someone is deported. But for most of the 20th century, the mid 20th century, and especially the period I look at after 1965, there was a revolving door effect that happened and that migrants would come work on short term contracts, either return to Mexico on their own or sometimes be apprehended and deported, and then return again. The employers were happy to welcome their uh, workers back. The workers were happy to return regardless of whatever you know, poor conditions and exploitative conditions may have existed since they were able to uh, earn more money than they could have in Mexico. And in this sense, it functioned for employers. It functioned for the country that depended on that cheap labor. And it also functioned for the immigration service because they could inflate the numbers of apprehensions and deportations. You know, so one of the things I found in the book is that many people who migrated between the United States and Mexico in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, you know, they had many encounters with immigration officials. It became a regular part or a normal part of their lives. And I think that unlike some other scholars that have argued that this was just kind of a nod in a wink system that worked for employers who worked for the immigration service, you know, there was a real cost to that, a real toll to repeated apprehensions, the possibility of being deported. Uh, and also on a larger scale, ideas of who was in undocumented or illegal alien, right, in the words of the Immigration Service. And the disproportionate targeting of Mexicans had a lot to do with that. And they're, they're, um, they're supplying the, the labor that this country needed is integrally tied into the creation of the prototypical illegal alien being a Mexican, right? That stereotype, that offensive idea is tied into the fact that their labor was demanded and sought out uh, and very much appreciated, but they were, in general, left in a liminal state in which they were always fearing and always in the possibility of deportation. Let's talk about the, those costs. You write the malign energies that the machine has unleashed have fueled xenophobia and demonized Asians and Europeans, Mexicans and Central Americans, Arabs and Muslims. How much does creating an exploitable immigrant labor force exacerbate, even institutionalize racism in the United States? I think the two are integrally connected. I, mean, I, I don't think we can think of them as separate at all. And, you know, the, the poor treatment of non-citizens, whether it's, you know, Mexicans, uh, Chinese in the late 19th century, which I also document in the book, Central Americans more recently, 
um, you know, it's very helpful for the United States government, policymakers, immigration service. It's helpful to have a scapegoat. And it's helpful for the federal government and federal officials to be able to point the finger at someone, as we certainly see on a weekly or even daily basis nowadays, rather than confronting the real issues that exist in this country uh, for so many millions of people. I mean, I have no doubt that you know people are suffering across the United States, right? I mean, with the unemployment numbers that have come out in, in recent months since the pandemic has started, but even prior to that, there's no doubt that people are in real need. But migrants are not to blame for that. You know, they're convenient scapegoat that politicians often turn to, uh, rather than, I think, kind of looking in the mirror and facing the hard facts that, you know, uh, the country needs to do a better job of you know, supporting uh, citizens and residents and needs to do a better job of creating economic opportunities for them. And historically, you know, migrants and usually you know, racial minorities have you know, been used as scapegoats for convenient ends by uh, U.S. policymakers. So the cost of immigration policy is unfortunately great more and more racism here in the United States and an institutionalizing of it. And you're right, unlike formal deportations, which usually have entailed expensive hearings and extended detention stays for people charged with more serious crimes, voluntary departures have enabled low-level officials to use administrative orders to expedite the expulsion of people charged with immigration violations and other minor infractions. So to what extent, if at all, is the price we pay for cost-cutting with voluntary departures justice? Are voluntary departures any more or less just than formal deportations? I'm glad you brought this up. You know, I want to clarify something here that you know voluntary departures have been incentivized by U.S. officials historically. Right? Not everyone qualifies for voluntary departure. And the number of voluntary departures has not been the same over time. It's changed. Actually, since 1996, the number of formal deportations has increased dramatically. And voluntary departures have dropped. Okay. Now, one of the ways that historically federal officials incentivized voluntary departure was, as I mentioned earlier, by threatening people with either indefinite stays in detention or multi-year or even lifetime bans on re-entering the United States if they're formally deported. And facing that possibility, a lot of people agreed to those administrative expulsions, the voluntary departures, seeing it as you know the best decision of all the bad options in front of them. But since 1996, because of an increase in funding for immigration enforcement and some important changes in the law, the number of formal deportations has increased dramatically. They've spiked to, to record high numbers. Okay, these are the formal deportations, not total deportations, the sum of voluntary departures, formal deportations, and the self-deportation campaigns. But one of the important realizations I had and something that surprised me as I got you know, deeper into the research in the latter part of the book, which covers the recent decades, is that voluntary departures um, are streamlined. Right? They're these fast-track, expedited expulsions. And in recent years, formal deportations have come to resemble them. So since 1998, half of deportations have occurred through expedited means, right? providing people with few options, few legal um, you know, options or any kind of due process. And in more recent years, since 2013, during the Obama administration and carrying to the Trump administration, you know, as many as three quarters or 80% of all the formal deportations 
have happened through these expedited means. In other words, you know, all deportations historically, you know, have been funneled into these fast track mechanisms that limit people's uh, legal rights and due process. So let's fast forward to, unfortunately, this past weekend. You write how in a June 2015 speech announcing his candidacy, Donald Trump referred to Mexican immigrants as criminals, drug smugglers, and rapists, and promised to build a great, great wall on our southern board, border uh, for which Mexico would supposedly pay. When Trump brought up immigration at Saturday's rally in Tulsa, he again framed his critique within how to stop gangs like M13 from coming into the United States and then referring to them as animals. Trump said, I said these are animals, and Nancy Pelosi said these are human beings, they're not animals. If I lose an election over that, you know what? This country is in big trouble. Now, some have complained he was saying immigrants are animals, but as defenders say, he was clearly only talking about M13 members. How might M13 members be a dog whistle for all immigrants, especially those crossing at the Mexican border, to dehumanize all immigrants and call, by calling them animals? You know, that type of you know, racist rhetoric and language you know, serves a real purpose. Right? Dehumanizes migrants, uh, makes them into, you know, quote unquote, others, and I think in turn justifies abhorrent inhumane treatment. Of those same individuals who, by the way, uh, you know, are oftentimes people with longstanding ties to the United States, U.S. citizens, permanent residents. You know, I think it's really important to break down this artificial binary that Trump likes to you know, always return to the us and them as if there were these neat divisions and lines we could draw uh, between those two groups. And, you know, that, that type of language about treating migrants as animals or as criminals or as gang members. I think, you know, we, we see this long history and I'm thinking here in the 1950s, in fact, that there are these atrocious conditions that people uh, suffered on transportation vessels on ships used to deport migrants across the Gulf of Mexico. 50,000 Mexicans were sent across the Gulf of Mexico in inhumane conditions, and the same holds of transportation cargo vessels that took bananas from Mexico to the United States and returned to Mexico with deportees, right? People are treated as human cargo. And the only way that that happened was there was some kind of ingrained you know, racist belief that, that type of treatment for the type of people being transported was okay, right? And U.S. officials, and I should mention Mexican officials, kind of showing the real class divisions within Mexican society, U.S. and Mexican officials were totally fine with that, thought that it was justified given the type of people uh, transported, as they put it. And I think today we certainly see the same thing with, you know, if we want to talk about punitive immigration enforcement policies, extended stays in immigration detention, deportation flights continuing during the pandemic. It's a lot easier for the administration to try to justify those actions by just using such a broad brush to paint and reinforce and solidify or try to at least, you know, these racist stereotypes of Central Americans, of Mexicans, um, of Muslims, South Asians, Arabs. You know, I think that, you know, those stereotypes obviously don't hold up to any kind of scrutiny and they're entirely problematic because that line is so thin and there's a lot of slippage that happens. And I think that's on purpose. You know, that's on purpose in a way, but it's a way that the administration justifies the really horrible actions 
that they've taken and also tries to rally their base and create these divisions to try to make that us and them divide more real when in reality it does not exist. So what effect then does this week's decision by the Supreme Court ruling that DACA can continue? What uh, effect do you think that will have on Trump's ability to carry out what you see as a draconian punitive immigration policy? What impact will that have on the punitive nature of his policy? Well, first, let me say that you know the DACA decision this week was a huge victory for the immigrant community and everyone who organized on behalf of it. And this was a surprise, I think, for many. Uh, but it only happened because of the organizing and sustained pressure that had happened you know, from below. It's, that being said, it's important to recognize the decision was extraordinarily narrow. Right? They ruled that the Trump administration could not end DACA in the way that they did. Right? It's a violation of the um, APA, Administrative Procedures Act. And they did not say that the Trump administration can't end the program. You know, the administration could, in fact, try to turn around and do that. But then they'd have to own it. You know, the court basically said that the way the Obama administration started the program was not illegal and therefore it remains. It's not void. And if Trump wants to end it, he has to own it. And a lot of commentators have said he's unlikely to do so in an election year, given the popularity of the program and the fact that you know these young people um, have been obviously integral members of our society and there's broad bipartisan support for the program. So what happens is uncertain. You know, I'm not going to make a prediction there. I think it's very difficult to say. Uh, but at the same time, I do think that this was a blow to the administration. And I think that they perhaps were surprised by it. And I think that Trump's reaction and subsequent you know, storm on Twitter has uh, you know, made his opinion clear. Uh, but I don't think it's going to stop him from trying to implement this really nativist uh nativist immigration policies and to limit, I should mention, not just undocumented migration, but all migration. And it's become very clear that that is the administration's goal, not to just stop undocumented migration, but to cut off all immigration. Uh, and that, you know, I think is a scary proposition that you was know, without precedent in the recent past. A really fascinating concept that you bring up as you write about the United States' long history of using coercion as a basic governing strategy. And that's kind of throughout your entire book. And I just want to tell our listening audience that it's just a fascinating concept. And you and I could talk about that for the next 25 minutes because I just find that really interesting. But I got one last question for you, Adam. We have been speaking with historian Adam Goodman, author of The Deportation Machine, America's Long History of Expelling Immigrants. We have one last question for you. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. I don't enjoy doing this because I don't want to embrace or support the kind of neoliberal focus on individual acts. But to what extent are we all compliant, complicit? in the deportation machine? I think that we are in a way, you know, for consumers in this country that appreciate paying rock bottom price for our produce and our food and our clothing and, you know, all the different things that immigrant labor force uh, creates. In a sense, then we do have to take a look in the mirror and um, ask, you know, what role we play and perhaps also how we might 
act in solidarity, right? Not just on social media and expressing solidarity, um, you know, on Twitter or Facebook or Snapchat or whatever it might be, but actually standing with the immigrant community, recognizing the importance of solidarity and of broad-based organizing that is migrant-led and seeing the ways in which we might help to dismantle the machine or at least, you know, get us started in that direction. Adam, I cannot thank you enough for being on this week's show. This is really, really great work. It's really fantastic. Thank you so much. And we look forward to having you on in the future as you are here in Chicago, maybe even someday up here at our own studios. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much. Take care. Again, that's Adam Goodman, author of The Deportation Machine, America's Long History of Expelling Immigrants. You can follow Adam on Twitter at Adam S.I. Goodman, and you can find out more about Adam at his website of the same address, Adam S.I. Goodman, bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from Hell is, what has Joe Biden been up to this whole time? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This is Hell medical face mask. If you can't wait to see if you won and you want a damn face mask, go to thisishell.com and click on support. That's thisishell.com and click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Mel at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner as we do each week following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Alex, do you have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from Hell? This week's question from Hell is... What's Joe Biden been up to this whole time? What has Joe Biden been up to this whole time? Shane J says, being alive, totally and completely alive, mm. breathing and eating and crapping totally normally like a live human being. Rob R says, massage therapy school. Gross. <laughs> John V says, that's actually really good. John V says, Shrek reruns on the Turner Classic Movies Network. Wouldn't it be horrible if you went to a massage therapy school and they had some student who was going to work on you and it was Joe Biden? <laughs> I wouldn't discriminate against, I'm not ageist. Yeah. Cardell says, my lawyer advises me not to comment on this matter at this time. I don't like the feeling of crepey skin on my back. Oh, I don't want anyone touching me. <laughs> uh, Warren L says, having his earlobes customized at the auto body shop, apparently. It's a, <laughs> In reference to how he's wearing these damn masks. Uh, what has Joe Biden been up to this whole time? Tyler R. says, painting with GW. <laughs> uh, John M. says, figuring out how he and Hunter will spend all the bribes they're going to receive from China once he gains office. <laughs> Joshua J. says, according to our one and only savior, Q, he is eating babies. Mostly dead ones. Sweet. Gorilla G. says, busy with a thousand piece jumbo jigsaw puzzle of Obama's official portrait. Sources confirm he's got the edges, but that tan suit is tricky. <laughs> Jeff C. says, trying his best to not sound like Donald Trump or Joe Biden. <laughs> uh, Juan S. says, asking Bernie for an introduction to Killer Mike after listening to Run the Jewels 4. Arnell G. says, practicing different silent but presidential facial expressions <laughs> as he watches Trump bury himself in the polls. Mike M. says, saying Sudoku wrong. <laughs> John T. says, clearing space for he's not Trump for the he's not Trump Nobel Prize. Krimsky K. says, Biden, his time. Little boy. Oh, fuck. Uh, finally, finally, Josh L. says, writing his second crime bill. <laughs> Again, you can email us your answer to Chuck at thisishell.com or Alex at thisishell.com or post them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio or DM them to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Again, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of show tomorrow, Thursday, following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. So get your answers. And now during tomorrow, uh, tomorrow's Moment of Truth, Jeff wonders if we can pretend our way to justice. 
Alex, who's on tomorrow's Thursday's live streaming show at 10 a.m. Chicago time, back here again at This Is Hell. Uh, researcher Connor Woodman is going to be on to talk about his five-part Verso blog series, The, Imp- the Imperial Boomerang. I'm really excited for this one. Five parts? Yeah, they're little blog posts, though, so don't worry. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I knew that you knew what I was talking about. Tune into tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream to find out if you've won this week's question from hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Oh, Alex, I did go to Oberoi last night. The, oh, I was just looking up. I was just looking up their menu today. I'll tell you what's great. Their butter chicken is out of this world. The lamb chop is, it, it's really good. But as Pete has reminded me, most lamb chops in the neighborhood are goat, and uh, their chicken bodhi is different. Uh, I, did you say the lamb chop was good, or did you say it was goat? It's good and goat, more oh, than likely. Okay. Right. <laughs> so it's not really that much of a problem. Uh, but uh, they're. I don't, do you ever get chicken pakora from next door? No. All it is is just like a fried ball of chicken. But they right. do it completely differently over at Oberoi, and it's got this really light batter on it, and it's fantastic. So if anybody's coming here for Friday when the bar reopens for some limited indoor seating and you're looking for a place to eat, there was recently an article about the best cheap Indian uh, places to eat in the city. Number one is the famous one over here at Sealy and Devon, Garib Nawaz. But this is a brand new place over at Bell and Devon called Oberoi, and I strongly suggest it if you are in the neighborhood. Thanks, Alex, for producing. Thanks to Adam for being our guest. The planet's on fire. So, yeah, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>